How many of you are waiting for something today? There is something specific in your mind that you are waiting for, that you are anticipating. Let me just see a show of hands. Maybe you are anticipating a get-together with family and friends for the 4th, and that's coming up, and therefore you're looking forward to that. Maybe for some of you, you are hungry because the 30-minute difference is already killing you. <laughs> and so your stomach is reminding you, and you are waiting in anticipation for that. You know, we anticipate and we wait. And the truth is, like, whether it's good or bad, positive or negative, uh, we're always waiting for something. It is essentially what it means to live because our entire lives are spent waiting, hoping, sometimes avoiding, but it's filled with anticipation. Uh, sometimes the anticipation is what you expect. Sometimes it's not what you expect. And sometimes, in rare cases, it's better than you expect. Which is also partly why some people, they try to lower their expectations for most things because the attitude and mantra is, if I expect little, then I'm always going to be okay. Maybe that makes sense to some of you, maybe not. But as we've been going through John, we've been examining Jesus' life and ministry. And throughout his ministry, Jesus speaks of a time that is at hand. An hour that is to come, but has not yet arrived. Do you recall? As we've gone through the passages and chapters of John, do you recall John, uh, Jesus on multiple occasions saying, it is not yet my time, it is not yet my hour, or the time is near, is at hand, right? But it is always this idea that it is coming, not yet here, close, but not yet arrived, Yes? And so, an hour that is coming. And what becomes apparent is that everything that Jesus has done has been timed in accordance with that clock. There is a clock that Jesus is going by that apparently only He is privy to. Only He is aware of. Nobody else seems to be really clear about what clock He's working off of, but Jesus is working off of that clock. A time set not to this world, but to heaven. And so Jesus' earthly life and ministry has been a steady march towards that appointed hour. And now, during the Passover feast, and notice, we haven't yet moved on. It's still the season of Passover. At the time of the Passover feast, as people have gathered to worship God, Jews, but also non-Jews. Here, as we will see, they're identified as Greeks. Jesus declares that the time has come. His time has finally arrived. So this then brings to mind a question. Because it's really at the heart of any, anything that we're anticipating. Anytime we're waiting for something... This is, I think, a question at the core of it, which is, when that time comes, exactly what is it that I've been waiting for? Right? What is it that I've been anticipating? What was Jesus anticipating with the arrival of His appointed time? Again, what was Jesus anticipating with the arrival of His appointed time? And the answer to that is this. 
Jesus is anticipating the full revelation to the world that he is God, the Son. The full revelation to the world that he is God, the Son. Jesus has already been talking about this. Jesus has already been intimating to this, referring to this, and yet at this hour, the full revelation that he is God, the Son, will be revealed to the world will be made to the world. And so there are three things in our passage that we're going to see. And so I think it's quite simple. I will lay what these three, three things are uh, out for each of you. And the first of these things is when we talk about the full revelation to the world that He is God the Son, well, the first of these is the glory of the Son. The full revelation of His glory. It says in verse 23, uh, after the, the, the non-Jews come to the feast, come to the Passover, they come looking for Jesus because they want to see Him. They want to talk to Him. The uh, disciples kind of talk together and then they take these Gentiles to see Jesus. And when Jesus sees them, He says in verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Last week we went into pointing out from the passage that Jesus is a king unlike any other. Remember? Jesus is a king unlike any other whose ways are not our ways. Truly. And there's no more a perfect reflection of this than how Jesus, the Son of Man, Jesus is favored nickname of sorts for himself, then how Jesus is glorified. How Jesus is glorified is a perfect reflection of the fact that Jesus is a king unlike any other and that God's ways, his ways, are not our ways. How Jesus is glorified is a paradox, a seeming contradiction. What's the contradiction? That only through his death could life result. Life resulting from death? Generally what we understand about life is this. Life comes from what? Life. A dead person can't give birth to another human being. Life is what creates, propels life forward. And yet Jesus gives a remarkable explanation about his glorification. That it is a seeming contradiction, a paradox. That in order for life to be, in order for life to spring up, that he would in fact need to die. And he uses the imagery of a seed to get to this point. But let me just kind of point out the fact that this contradiction is seen in so many different aspects. For example, consider that Jesus' glory and His glorious hour is anchored by something that is filled with shame. From a cultural context, from any angle you look at it, 
it is not seemingly one of glory. For Jesus to be lifted up, his lifting up would be for him to be lifted up on a cross. The punishment publicly of someone who is a criminal, of someone who is not worthy, is the exact opposite of glory. It's what the Roman Empire and other empires did in order to shame their enemies into submission. And yet here Jesus is, and He is saying that the hour has come. His hour has come, and it is going to be anchored by a shameful death. The very idea of Jesus' glorification, the glorifying of the Son, is a paradox. It's one which a lot of people seem to struggle with. And so now, Jesus points out something that... uh, that we can kind of correlate with, connect with, to make his point. He says, a seed needs to fall to the earth and die, but from that seed will spring new life. From a single seed, a solitary seed that is all alone in the earth, will spring up much fruit, much life. And he refers to this picture as a way to point to himself. Another thing about this contradiction is the fact that generally death, death is not fruitful. Think about it. I mean, in real terms, human life. When have you ever seen death be fruitful? For the most part. For the most part, death is sad, sometimes tragic, unfair, and often unnatural, yeah? And yet here Jesus, in talking to these people who are listening, says... And if the grain falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. His life and his death is a contradiction in terms, seemingly, on the surface. But Jesus is saying, my death will bring about much fruitfulness. He's going to get into this even further. But the glory of the Son is in glory rising up out of something that might otherwise be seen and perceived as shame. And so Jesus lays this out and he says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And this is all the follow-up to his statement, Whoever loves his life loses it. But whoever hates his life in this world keeps it for eternal life. Again, another seeming paradox and contradiction in terms, right? How can you hate your life in order to save it? And if you love your life, how do you lose it? And yet Jesus is clarifying what that means, giving hints to that when He says, if anyone serves Me, he must follow Me. And then He says, where I am, you will also find My servants also, because they will be following Me, and My Father will honor Him. This is the glory of the Son. Because in everything that this world, that is natural, that brings about brokenness, death, and destruction, only Jesus can contradict that and bring that about to glory. Consider our lives and life here. It is an often unjust, harsh, broken reality. Yes? Life is often not fair. In fact, it's most often not fair. And often when we don't even realize it. Bad things do happen to good people, far too often. 
And seemingly, bad people often seem to skate. At least it seems. Right? And from this kind of a broken world, what is natural is that there's nothing that seemingly can be done about this. Because in the end, we all just die. And yet, don't you see, that's why it's the glory of the Son, to be able to come into the world and contradict the very course of this broken world. That in His death, He can bring about wholeness, rightness, completeness, justice in His very kingdom, through His very blood. This is the glory of the Son. It's the most glorious thing that Jesus would overcome this world, not by conventional terms that we think of, that we talked about last week, not by military might, not by the might of His wealth or power or reach or fame or any of these things, but by the power of His own life. And this is the glory that emanates from something that seems so very shameful. The second thing that we see here that is revealed about the Son, the full revelation, is that the mission of the Son. From verse 27 to 36, then Jesus continues on and says, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? We look at this, and Jesus is talking about the hour having come. But yet Jesus is now saying, My soul is disturbed. And we go, Wait, your soul is disturbed. Jesus is God, but He's also humanity. Right? He has taken on humanity. It's the very picture we see in the garden in, in the, the Gospels where Jesus is praying be, on the night of His betrayal and He is praying because He's saying, Lord, take this cup from me. Jesus is God. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't experience the burden of what it meant for Him to take the sin of the world upon Himself. This would be the, I think, epitome of what we would call bittersweet. It is bittersweet. The bitterness of everything that Jesus is going to have to experience is the fact of the harsh realities that it will inflict upon his connectivity with the Father. God, who has known nothing but glory, came into the world and experienced nothing but rejection and shame, and he's going to experience the culmination of that in the pain and suffering that's to come. I got news for you. As a human being, you know, I think one of the things I fear most is pain. I think that it's not even necessarily death that I'm afraid of. It's pain. I think it's very human to want to avoid pain and fear pain. Jesus is God, but he's also human. And you can't tell me that the pain is something that he was looking forward to on top of everything else. And so Jesus, when he says, now my soul is troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. It's weighing on him. Then he says, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. This is the reason he's here. This is the mission for which he has come. Verse 28, then he says, Jesus does, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. What I want to be clear about here is that Jesus is not talking to himself and he is not actually just talking to the crowd anymore. He is talking to the Father. And he talks to the Father and he is offering up prayer. And to this, Father, glorify your name. The Father says, I have glorified my name. The exact point at which this has occurred has not necessarily been identified, but we can, you know, uh, make some conclusions from Scripture. You know, when Jesus 
uh, is baptized and rises up out of the water and the voice and the presence of you know, the Father descends on Jesus like a dove and, and the Father speaks in that moment. But here the Father says, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. And the implication is the Father's name will be glorified through this hour that Jesus is now confronted with. Verse 29 and then, so the crowd heard this, and, you know, the crowd that's standing around, and they heard it, they said that it had thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. Notice, though, John doesn't necessarily say that, you know, that they're correct in their uh, interpretations of what they're hearing or what, all of that. Some concluded it was like thunder, a natural event. And then others, others correctly concluded that, you know, somehow it is a, of the voice or a connection from God the Father. Just that much is the conclusion that John wants us to kind of walk away with. And Jesus responds and says, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. It's not that they understood it. So why is the voice for their sake, if, even if they didn't understand it? Because the message wasn't as important as the fact that they were very clear that the Father and the Son were communicating. Make sense? They don't need to know the message as long as they understand the relationship. And only one who has that kind of relationship could have an exchange with the Father that way. And so Jesus says, this is for your benefit. So that everything I am telling you, you know is true. And then he says, verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Verse 35, And so Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Here, the people do not quite understand as Jesus says, the sun must be lifted up. And they're like, but the son of man is forever. And they're asking, what the heck does this mean? And Jesus explains. Here, what we find in this section where Jesus is speaking is the mission of the Son. Clearly, we already understand one part of it is the glorifying of the Father. Amen? The Son came. Jesus came that God might be glorified. And of course, given that He is God, that He Himself is glorified. The glorifying of the Father. But connected to the glorifying of the Father, what we see here is that the judgment of the world is very much connected to the glorifying of the Father. So when we talk about the mission of the Son, it is glorifying the Father. And the flip side of that coin is the judgment of the world. That's what Jesus says. The judgment of the world. Notice though, she says, now is the judgment of the world. But... Jesus, when he came this first time, he is not come to judge. He's going to do that his second time around. But his words themselves are very 
very much related to judgment. Because if you receive his words, then you are in the blessing of being a son of light, being part of the family of God. If you reject his words, then by that you will already have cursed yourself to judgment. Make sense? But the full impact of that judgment will take place when Jesus returns. But that's the first part. The judgment of the world is where God is making all things right, as it should be. Let me point out that when we glorify God, we glorify God even as Jesus is glorifying God. Meaning what? In glorifying God, we are doing what is right. We are doing what should be done, which is honoring the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But related to that is the making all things right. Jesus, when he returns, will make all things right in creation as he remakes and brings the kingdom of heaven in the, you know, to fullness. Meaning, heaven and earth becoming one. You read the scriptures throughout and you read Revelation and what you will see is this. Heaven is not some place that we go to. Heaven is some place that has come to us. And it has come to us by virtue of the fact that Jesus came to us. Jesus brought heaven into this world. That's a very different idea than Jesus came and then he's going to return to take us to heaven. Right? Very different idea. But Jesus has come and he brought heaven into this world. And now heaven is in this world. And in true ways, both visible and invisible, the kingdom of God is expanding. And when Jesus returns, everything will be made right, as it should be. So all of the brokenness we've talked about, all of the brokenness we observe, will be made right. How is it made right? By the glorifying of God, the judgment of God. These two things are unavoidably tied. When God returns, when Jesus returns, he will judge the world. And in doing it, he will make all things new. And in making all things new, what will Jesus do? The second part of the judgment. So first is glorifying the Father, and the second part is judging the world. Part of the judging the world is this, is that Jesus says that he will cast out the ruler of this world. Satan is the invisible hand that we have all been tempted by. The dark things of this uh, universe are things that, realities that we know of. Whether we call it by name or not, we've all experienced the ramifications of it. We see it. And when Jesus returns, the fullness of this will take place. But he says here that the ruler of this world will be cast out. He says, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Satan loses his grip on things because of what Jesus does on the cross. And it's the beginning of the end. This is the mission of the Son. This brings me to the third part. The third part of the revealing, the full revealing of the Son of God, of Jesus, is this, the witness of the Son. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, verse 44, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Meaning, if you believe in me, you believe in God. God the Father. They're one. And whoever sees me, sees who sent me. I have come into the world as light, and so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to this world to judge the world, but to save the world. 
Here, Jesus is being absolutely correct. He did not come to the world to judge it, even as he has said multiple times, he came to save it. But his words of saving will ultimately result in judgment, right? Those two things cannot be separated, although some people try. Some people try to say Jesus and the gospel is all love and acceptance. Well, you, that is true, but you can't dissect that from the judgment of his words too. To believe in him or not, to follow him or not, And so, Jesus says, I I didn't come to judge the world, but to save it. The one, verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. You see what I'm saying? Jesus says, my words will judge you. I did not come this time to judge you now, but I will judge you later. And my words have already laid out what the judgment will be based on how you respond to it. Respond to him. Verse 40, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a command. What to say and what to speak. Verse 50, and I know that his command is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus came for eternal life. Jesus is that seed that died. If you look at just the surface of Jesus' ministry in his earthly life, you could point to it and you can say it was a stupendous failure. I want to be clear about this. In purely earthly terms, on the surface level, you look at Jesus' earthly ministry while he was, quote-unquote, alive before he died on the cross, and you can call it an epic failure. Why? Judge it purely on worldly terms, then, if we will, for for a second, right? Here he comes into the world, the Savior of the world. He came into the world, he preaches the truth, he shows signs about himself, and in response to that, the world killed him. And it's not like his followers rose up in support of him. They all ran away. So you tell me, success or failure? Failure. Stupendous failure. If the story ends that way. Jesus was alone for all intents and purposes in his ministry while he was alive. We see this in Scripture, and we saw it recently. His disciples don't get it. Nobody gets it truly while Jesus was alive. But then after he died and is glorified, what does it say? That his disciples then understood, then knew. You know what the significance of that is? Is that they couldn't see truly what was going on before. They could kind of make out parts of it, and even others throughout the course of history could make out parts of it, like John the Baptist, but nobody could truly clearly see it. But Jesus, his hour comes, he is glorified on that cross, he rises from the grave as part of that glorifying time, and then everybody understands. Ah, that Jesus' life and ministry is not like every other life and ministry that we have known. Life and death is not how we understand it when we're in Jesus. It is completely transformed. Jesus died. And then all of a sudden, what do we see? His disciples are transformed. And from there, they testify to what they have seen, what they have heard, what they have experienced, and others are transformed as they believe. That's how it is that you and I could be here today. Think about that for a second. It is the result of centuries and centuries upon centuries of other faithful witnesses who have heard the gospel, heard the truth of who Jesus is, experienced that truth and transformation personally upon their belief in Him, and then have passed it on. That is 
the abundant, fruitful result that Jesus is talking about. That is the witness of the Son. Do you understand? We are the fruit of Jesus' death. And can I get an amen to that? Think about what that means. We are the fruit of Jesus' death. That is an amazing thing. That we are connected to Jesus in a very clear way. And in our witness to the risen Son, we participate in the growing abundance that results from His sacrifice. Isn't it interesting? We call, this is Independence Day. But not Independence Day because of true freedom. It's not true freedom in this world. Not apart from Christ. Every freedom that we have is a matter of degrees. Right? Every freedom is a matter of degrees. Only in Jesus can we have freedom beyond the grave, beyond the limitation of what this world has cursed upon life. What is your response today to Jesus' death that was laid out for you for his glory? You are the fruit of his death. That's a powerful thing. I live because Jesus died. I know freedom because Jesus gave his up. I know what it means and I will continue to know in greater measure what it means to live life abundantly beyond the injustices and brokennesses of this world, even in the here and now, throughout eternity, because Jesus gave up his life. We have a beautiful and wonderful testimony, one that we should always remember, never forget, because there's nothing like it. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, believes in the Father who sent me, and we are witnesses to that. So I encourage you today to take time to reflect upon your status as a witness of the Son. The full revealing of Jesus has been happening since that day of His hour of His glory and it is still happening today through you, through me, through us. How amazing is that? And by the way, that revealing needs to happen in every new generation. It's not ever a work that is completed until Jesus returns. Amen? So your generation, whatever your generation is, you have that opportunity to be his witness. So let us be reminded of the glory that we can lift up to Jesus in making things right by lifting up his name.